Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, it is the second Saturday of the month, I believe, which means it's time for the Arthritis Recovery Hour with Clint Pattison. And today he's going to answer any questions you have about arthritis and maybe about other subjects too. We'll see. Please welcome all the way from Australia, Clint Pattison. Nice to see you again. You too. And what a champion you are just continuing to uh, do these day in, day out. Must be thousands of these that you've done now. So give you the exact number in a minute, but you are, we're <laughs> almost at 1500. So I mean, how high can I go? Okay. So you're episode 1461. So not, not quite. We've got a few more to go to get. I wonder who my 1500th guest will be. I have no idea until it gets a little closer. What a milestone it will be. So my admiration and respect and uh, all wonderful things towards you and all that you're doing. So thanks for having me back on here. Hopefully we get lots of people interested in uh, getting answers around their arthritic symptoms. Uh, for people who uh, aren't familiar with me, I've had rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years. Uh, the first sort of four years were in the complete darkness and wilderness of RA hell. Um, I ended up having elbow surgery and uh, and uh, was on maximum dose of methotrexate all within the uh, first four years of diagnosis. I was limping uh, terribly on a torn ACL, blown up left knee that was bone on bone in three chambers within three years. I mean, I was a total mess. And um, we, uh, we followed a, um, a, a discovery path that was pretty much... Uh, self self discovered uh through uh food poisonings and setbacks and books and everything and managed to get rid of uh my inflammation enough to come off the drugs have three healthy kids and develop a program that's now helped 16,000 people around the world to uh who follow the program currently uh to dramatically improve their lives with inflammatory arthritis and so that's what we do today is we help people with inflammatory arthritis and this also extends into, uh, you know, not just rheumatoid, but sciatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, lupus, and so forth. Uh, and you get osteoarthritis for free if you've got rheumatoid arthritis. And so folks with osteoarthritis uh, are also very much in our awareness. And uh, we have information that uh, is all evidence-based that can help that spectrum of people. So that's what we do. And uh, it's a pleasure to be back on here to to help folks. Well, that is great. How did you know how to help yourself? How did you figure it out first? Well, there are only two books available on Amazon, two. I mean, that's think about how small the, the information was at the time uh, that had been written by patients who had described their recovery from, one of them was from reactive arthritis. So if we want to get real specific, that limits us down to one person. Uh, and I followed her program and uh, and uh, actually worsened. So um, that started me documenting my progress. Actually, I documented my progress with a little old handy cam, like hold the, you know, you have to hold the camera and uh, uh, put it on an old fashioned tripod and stuff. I started doing that, uh, thinking that her program was going to get me out of the woods. Uh, and in fact, that enabled me to capture myself going backwards and worsening and then start a little personal documentary of which I haven't released any footage. 
Um, and so anyway, uh, we just trial and error. My wife's been vegetarian since birth, raised in a vegetarian family. So she encouraged me in that direction, which I was reluctant to do because I've always been skinny. And I thought if I gave up meat, dairy, that I would end up, uh, you know, being able to hide behind a, uh, a telegraph pole. And so I didn't want to lose any more weight, but eventually through trial and error and just experimentation and continual research and reading the books that were available, Dr. McDougall, uh, Dr. Hiromi Shinya, these were influential um, guide, guidance for me. And we made discoveries and I have worked professionally as a stand-up comedian for now 24 years. So there was a lot of overlap and I had a lot of time, you see, so we didn't have kids and I didn't have a day job. And so that uh, gave me an opportunity to lean onto my sort of science education, which I'd had at Macquarie University and thought, I'm just going to apply, like, I'll trial one thing today. If it doesn't work, I'll try something else. And if that works, I'll fix that in and then I'll try something else. And just slowly but surely starting to put connect some dots and um, comparing that to what I was learning from the medical literature. And yeah, so it was... Uh, it was a lot of support from my wife, Melissa, too, who who got me through it, really, mentally, because it was just absolute misery with a capital M. Mm. Must be nice being on the other side now. It is. And so now it's maintenance with a capital M. Uh, and so it's all about now trying to uh, keep inflammation uh, to a level that is undetectable. Um, and sometimes that uh, it requires discipline. You know, I go to the gym, every, I go to gym about six, five or six days a week. I eat the way that we'll talk about here and I've spoken about in our other talks. In fact, your diet and my diet, I think if very we- Very close. Eat, they're very, very close. close. There's, 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 in fact, there's no, there's no notable difference. If people were to follow your diet with our condition, I think they do tremendously well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that as long as we do these things, um, you know, we can not just hope for results, but expect to improve. And that's what we see amongst our community is a community of people who do vastly better than the average person with inflammatory arthritis, because we're actually following the science, which suggests that if you improve your gut health, and if you are physically active and you reduce stress and you optimize your cell membrane ratio, and if you, uh, you know, get exposure to sunshine and uh, near infrared radiation, your vitamin D levels are good. You know, if you do all these things, then you're going to have good clinical outcomes. And so that's what we try and teach. You know, it's interesting because you say my diet and your diet. Well, our diet, it's not that different. I mean, it's pretty much the same as Dr. Esselstyn's diet, Dr. McDougall's diet, Mastering Diabetes diet. I mean, really, we're basically talking about a plant-exclusive, pretty low in fat diet, unprocessed, whole natural foods, you know? No absolutely. Oil, for example. And, uh, no, you're absolutely correct. And the only thing that we've had to do to make things, if that sounds scary to some people, the only thing we've had to do to make it even more scary, um, we've had to um, we've had to apply an elimination process because when you've got an autoimmune disease that's inflammatory, you develop all of these food sensitivities and some of them are so obscure. 
like broccoli and 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 carrots and the things that are so obscure um not to mention the obvious ones like dairy and often like gluten or cereal grains and so what we have to do is we have to we have to remove food groups even within the plant based realm uh that are that show up in the literature as being more allergenic for example the cereal grains and and just temporarily put those aside as we settle our symptoms down and get inflammation right down. And then we gradually re refeed the, the, the body with these foods over time. Once inflammation has begun under control. Yeah. You know, I was thinking my little dog just climbed up on my lap and she doesn't have arthritis, but when I've had big dogs, they've really had arthritis and they would give them shots and acupuncture and Rimadyl. Does the same thing that causes arthritis in people? Is that what it also causes it in pets? I cannot answer that with any scientific knowledge. I've not looked into pets at all. Um, I've had, it's re really strange, but my dad asked me that a few times over the years because, he, you know, he's got pets on the farm and so on. Um, and I've just never looked into it. Uh, so I, I cannot answer that any better than anyone else. Um, but I have my suspicions. Uh, but you know, then we get into the topic of, well, you know, if if a, if a dog is a true carnivore, then what that dog's diet should look like should potentially be different than, say, a human diet that is, you know, configured to try and optimize our gut health via a, a, a plant-rich, a fiber-rich diet. So I don't know. I don't, you know, have the science on that. Okay. Well, find out for next time, but um, maybe you'll even start a program for pets. I bet they would be very good customers. I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay. Well, you said you were going to answer questions this time. So we are going to take them from the chat as well as the ones that were sent in. So I'll just go in the order they were received from the chat and then we'll get to the ones that were sent in. We'll do a little bit back different this time. We usually start with the sent in ones. So uh, Lachey says, what kind of organic teas can you drink to help rheumatoid arthritis? So there's some good evidence around green tea as a as a as a healthy drink. The caffeinate the caffeine levels is low in green tea. Um, I I think that uh, if you want to have a nice herbal tea, green tea is a good way to go. Um, I believe there's a U-shaped curve on the benefits of green tea. So uh, you know you might have a cup or two, and then improvements are associated with that. But if you go over the top and you're drinking it exclusively, then there are you know, I think the benefits start to start to go the other way. So, um, you know, a couple of green teas a day is probably okay. Um, then we've got rubos tea, which is out of South Africa, which is a non-caffeinated uh, herbal drink. And then, of course, you can find endless options if you just want to have ginger teas and lemon teas and and uh, uh, um, even um, people have uh, turmeric teas. I mean, you can make any kind of tea like that you want. So any root sort of vegetable tea, herbal tea, it's all fine. And um, yeah, I mean, polyphenols is what we're chasing, right? When we do this. And so all of those have polyphenols and are going to be there for a little bit, a little bit beneficial for the microbiome. Great. Thank you. Here's a comment from Bethany. She loves your episode with Dr. McDougall about rheumatoid arthritis. Where would someone see that? Um, head over to the YouTube channel uh, of Patterson Program. That's double D-I-S-O-N. 
uh, and you'll be able to find that. That one goes back uh, probably about four years now. And so that's where that is. We have shifted our YouTube channel uh, publication to Rheumatoid Solutions, which is where all of our podcasts are now coming on to. Um, but our, our other YouTube channel, the sort of the legacy channel, uh, is the Patterson Program one and Dr. McDougall's on there. Great. I love Dr. McDougall. I'll definitely watch that. Here's a question. Do you think that your rheumatoid arthritis is cured or is it just managed? It's managed. There's no cure. I used to think back in about 2000, from about 2013 to 2019-ish, around that sort of period of like six years or so, I used to feel absolutely bulletproof. Like I felt like this is going to be like how I am for the rest of my life in terms of symptom-free, able to eat all plant-based foods in unlimited quantities, almost like, uh, almost like get away with, I mean, I was eating like huge volumes of nuts and, and, uh, and, and, and food combinations were poor of, you know, sugary soy milk in the morning. And I mean, I was really kind of, I was able to uh, eat very, very casually within the whole food, well, soy milk, yeah, but like pretty much like whole food plant-based spectrum, right? And I was, you know, eat out, have burrito here, Indian meal here, eating out at restaurants, a little bit of oil here and there, right? No problem. Hitting the gym, staying active, building strength, good attitude, low stress, happiness, okay? And then I had like a big setback. Uh, I went out to a well-known U.S. Uh, sort of restaurant chain that serves like a lot of different foods and had a huge, big, greasy uh, veggie burger patty with a side, big side of deep fried uh, sweet potato wedges. At nine o'clock at night, this, there was no salad on the burger. There was no side salad. I had no fruits, nothing, no antioxidants with the meal. I was stressed late at night, et cetera, et cetera. So I've told this story elsewhere. So uh, I'll, I'll shorten it up and say that the next day I triggered symptoms again from that one meal, despite years of being self uh, sort of bulletproof in my, in my mind. And uh, that then impacted several joints that had been compromised through my sort of early years of rheumatoid, particularly the left knee. So the left knee, which had, which I'd been managing despite all three chambers completely bone on bone, that ignited inflammation again in that left knee after actually a, a biking accident. So it was a combination of things. And then this led to a series of problems. So um, I had to fight really hard to get that back under control because then COVID kicked in. We were living in the States. I couldn't see my rheumatologist. And it became a mess and stress went through the roof again and symptoms reignited from that one meal. Wow. And so uh, now I feel more vulnerable than what I did prior to that meal still to this day. And so I am far more humbled by that experience. And so my, uh, my, you know, my bravado and my, my, um, my, you know, position on this is now uh, much more, um, much more uh, controlled uh, in terms of my response to that question. And if you'd asked me that, you know, 
five five years ago, what I said, you know, you can do this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and now I'm like, look, this thing's a monster. And we just have to always be on the lookout because when we have this pre-existing condition, then even small amounts of intestinal permeability, uh, all the impact of the microbiome from other external sources, it can all lay ourselves to be, you know, susceptible to low-grade inflammation. So we have to, you know, keep in touch with the rheumatologist like I do, periodic uh, checkup every six months just to see where we're at and just, you know, keep an eye on things because you don't want your symptoms to creep. Yep. Absolutely. What role does exercise have in the recovery from rheumatoid arthritis? <laughs> that's like uh that's like an alley-oop. If you've ever seen one, like the, the guy's running towards the net and then someone throws a ball right up in the perfect position and you're there to dunk it. Like that's as if someone just gave me like the ultimate throw up in the air. Um, all I like talking about mostly these days, if you just say, Clint, what do you want to say about this topic? I want to talk about exercise. Uh, and I've even gotten to the position where one day I may even make the claim that exercise is more important than diet. And I know that's a big, big controversial statement, but it's so important that uh, <clears throat> I, have, I haven't done a, uh, we haven't done a, a, a training on exercise yet, have we? So maybe that can be, my next live presentation, Chef AJ, was we can do all about exercise because it's so important for so many reasons. Um, and let me just give you a few. <clears throat> so first of all, and we have to sort of set a pre-frame here, is that when we have a lot of ongoing or chronic autoimmunity, as a result of this, we develop a lot of free radicals in our body, literally around the joints, because in the action of applying the white blood cells that are sent in to fight the perceived or actual invaders at the joint site, there is a lot of free radical production to eliminate the invaders as a mechanism of breaking down their molecular structure. But the accumulation of long-term free radicals in the body depletes our antioxidant resources within our cells, namely glutathione, superoxide dismutase, catalase, and so on. Now, these, the result of this is the perpetuation of the disease itself. So we've then got not just dysbiosis of the gut, but then we have something called oxidative stress. With oxidative stress and the inadequate resources of these antioxidant enzymes, we're in a bit of a kerfuddle because the dysbiosis through intestinal permeability is contributing to joint pain, but now also oxidative stress can itself create foreign looking proteins that then themselves become immunoreactive. And so we then have two sources autoimmune reactivity uh, triggers that can be stimulating us in our body. The answer to this, in it, it, well, one of the big uh, offenses we have against this is exercise. So exercise itself can improve the microbiome and exercise is the number one most effective strategy to combat oxidative stress. And this is a bit of a 
uh, a perceived dichotomy because when we do a little bit of exercise, we actually get a little bit of oxidative stress. And so I just said that exercise improves oxidative stress. So how does that work? It works because of the body adapting to the stimulus. And so if we do a little bit of exercise, we create a little bit of free radical load in the body as a result of that. And the body says, uh-oh, I need to offset this. And it upregulates those antioxidant enzymes that I mentioned earlier. And as a result, that suppresses the oxidative stress in the cells. And we have a little bit more glutathione, a little bit more superoxide dismutase, a little bit more catalase. So in folks with rheumatoid arthritis, it's been shown that there is an inverse relationship between these antioxidant enzymes and inflammation. So when they go down, inflammation goes up. So exercise is our number one strategy to improve these key antioxidant enzymes. And one study which was done uh, on the, on a, on the Navy, Navy troops in India, uh, they did, I think it was a four, four months to six months where they did, they introduced yoga to the, uh, to the Indian troops. And they did yoga a couple of times a week. And it improved their levels of glutathione, I want to say 44%, or maybe it was 40-something percent in six months. Now, if there was a drug that could do that, it is literally life-changing because low glutathione correlates to like a shorter lifespan, terribly low energy levels. Um, and it's just completely uh, like it's the master antioxidant in the body like forget blueberries, this is, this is where the, the, the sort of the, the win or lose actually happens. And so if we can become fit, then we will have correspondingly high levels of energy, glutathione, lower inflammation, and so on. So that's just the antioxidant enzymes argument. I could, you know, we could consume literally the rest of this talk, and I don't want to use up all our time on this, but that's enough to say, okay, I should become fitter. Uh, and just bullet point a few more things here. Uh, your VO2 max, which correlates to your fitness levels, uh, that is also inversely proportional to C-reactive protein measured in elderly adults. So the fitter folks are, with or without rheumatoid, the less inflammation they have in the body. Um, fitness levels create, uh, 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 sorry, your fitness capacity is also um, tied into a reduced risk of all cause of other diseases, right? So reduce your risk of diabetes, heart attacks, everything across the spectrum. And what's amazing about that is there's no upper limit. Like literally the fitter you are, the less likely you are to develop other diseases and die. Like to no upper limit. And I've never seen a study that amazed me quite the way that that one was written. They're like, well, there's no upper limit to this. And it's, you don't see that much in the scientific literature where they're very conservative, normally the, the researchers. But then also, and this is really specific to rheumatoid, we develop tendonitis in all of the joints that are also displaying inflammatory synovitis because the inflammation spills out into the connective tissues. And so those connective tissues respond dramatically well to engagement. So we have to engage the tendons at the joint 
to reduce their inflammation. And the only way we can do that is to use those joints. That applies to the small joints. It also applies to the big, you know, hips and knees, ankles, you name it, right? So we've got to engage the joints to reduce the tendonitis, which can be a very large contributing factor to the C-reactive protein, because it really is a, you know, it contributes a lot to that. And so in summary of this, we have a essentially a gut disorder that creates an oxidative stress side problem, all of which contributes to a joint problem. And so we need to address the joint problem and the oxidative stress with exercise whilst we work on the diet to fix the gut problem. So how much exercise is necessary for this problem? Okay, so what I'd like to recommend, and we have guidelines around this in our program, of course. Um, like we have specific exercises showing you what to do each day, how much to do, which exercises to do for your elbows, which ones for your knees, how to you know uh, get your feet moving again if they're stuck in shoes all the time, soft shoes because your feet hurt, how to move your hands, how not to irritate your hands. So with, all this is inside our materials in detail, but the concepts involved in terms of how much to exercise is because of that dichotomy of a little bit of oxidative stress actually, um, sorry, a little bit of exercise actually stimulates some oxidative stress. We should start out exercising every day at an exertion level of 50 to 70%. Now, why that? It's because the benefits of movement every day moves the synovial fluid through the joints and gets the engagement of those tendons. This is really, really uh, important and anti-inflammatory on its own, but we don't exercise to the exertion level that causes the muscle hypertrophy so that we can't exercise every day. So we want to just do it at the level that is kind of easy and we're building a habit. And then when we develop a reduction in symptoms in those joints, we then ramp it up to 70 to 90% exertion and we do it every other day to allow some muscle recovery. Um, so that's how we go about it. Great. Thank you. Let's see what else we got. Somebody is saying... Why can't I see the chat? There we go. That they have, Pam is saying, I have so many food sensitivities. So how do you help people uncover what their theirs are? Um, what we found is that 90% of people can slot perfectly into the elimination process that we have created without any kind of modifications, concerns, or uh, personalizations. And so we get people just to follow this sequence that now, as I said a moment ago, like over 16,000 people have been through this and it, it just works. So we start out with a two-day cleanse and then we get people into a very simple range of foods, uh, which are mostly pseudo grains and sweet potatoes and some uh, uh, foods that are specific for um elimination of uh, pathogenic bacteria and for um, building specific microbes inside the gut like garlic i was just doing a, a video about this the other day so i've got a half a garlic on my table of all things um, and uh, we 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 move people through that 
So that's only a seven to ten, uh, uh, currently a ten day, which will which will soon to become only a seven day elimination process, and then foods are reintroduced each day, uh, with the aim to looking for food reactions. So uh, you know inflammation starting to come back. Uh, as a result of reintroducing foods. And we like to reintroduce a lot of fruits early after that first 10 days because there are just so many supportive reasons for why we want to do that. But you know, we, we can go into those if we want um, and then slowly then build into some more uh, starchy foods um, after that. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to settle inflammation. That is the first objective get inflammation down as fast as we can because the number one cause of leaky gut is actually the inflammation. We've got to get the inflammation down. Then we can add foods which will repopulate our healthy species of microbes in the gut and then they do all the work. We, we literally just feed our working team of healthy microbes and they rebalance the gut. They reduce the acidity. Sorry, they increase the acidity in the gut to suppress uh, pathogenic microbes. They produce the short chain fatty acids to feed the colonocytes, which are the, the healthy cells inside our epithelium. They produce the short chain fatty acids to feed the goblet cells, which then are able to produce enough of the mucus to cover and protect the mucosal wall from the species bacteria that are getting too close and causing the inflammation and the immune response. So we literally just defer the gut healing process to the species that are already there that are health, helpful by feeding those preferentially. So your bifidobacterias and your lactobacillus bacterias and all these other, you know, acomantias and all these other fancy ones all who like a variety of plant-based foods and tons of polyphenols, right? So that's, that's what we're trying to do in the environment of with, without simultaneously triggering food, food uh, um, sensitivity inflammation. Nice. Thanks. Yeah. One of the comments she made was that she was doing this, but went back to the sad diet and so inflamed proof of the puddings in the eating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Dina says she's following your protocol, reading your book at the moment. And Richard says he has OA, uh, I guess that's osteoarthritis under his left kneecap from an injury back in college, but he's never had to deal with pain, but did have chronic swelling for a while. Doctor thinks he has no pain because of his anti-inflammatory diet. And Steve would like to know, will what you're talking about also apply to osteoarthritis? He was just diagnosed. And, and then when you answer that, Stephanie says, can you please explain the difference between rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis? Mm, okay, well, uh, he, it's, not, it's not obviously good to be diagnosed with osteoarthritis. We don't want anything going wrong with the body ever, <clears throat> but it's one heck of a lot better than being diagnosed with rheumatoid um, because rheumatoid is essentially the multiple sclerosis version in an arthritic form where you've got the body attacking itself. It's that level of concern in terms of the medical community about prognosis, severity of disease outcomes, you know, and the medical approach is to be very aggressive with some of the most black box labeled warning drugs on the market. So rheumatoid is the big daddy of 
arthritic worrisome conditions okay um osteoarthritis is uh the more common of the two and is essentially the evidence through imaging like x-rays of wear and tear and a cartilage uh cartilage erosion that sits between the two uh, opposing bones now both of them have an inflammatory component the inflammatory component of the rheumatoid, however, is on turbo and is on uh, almost doesn't have an off switch. Now, the osteoarthritis version has a very mild inflammatory component, and and both of them have similarities in that a whole food plant based diet has clinically shown to be very effective to reduce markers like C reactive protein in patients in studies of both conditions, All right? In fact, not only that, but um, uh, the next podcast I think that we're about to release uh, is with a woman called Wendy, a researcher from the Netherlands who's just published a study uh, that came out only a month or two ago. And I interviewed her and we went through the study results and it's all about how the wonderful effectiveness of a plant-based diet for people with rheumatoid arthritis and their outcomes, their ability, a percentage of them to reduce medications whilst on the study, uh, whilst doing the plant-based diet. And she did another study that we're going to be uh, talking about once it's published in a few weeks, I think. And they did the same thing for osteoarthritis patients. And the study's not yet released, but it supports existing evidence that is similar in the literature, which shows a plant-based diet also reduces the inflammatory markers of people with osteoarthritis. And so we've got some nice consistent studies coming through, um, you know, spaced several years apart from different research groups showing the same thing. So um, definitely on the right path, eating a uh, whole food plant-based diet. And what I want to emphasize going back to the, uh, to the exercise discussion earlier is that there was a study that was, that shown that even folks with osteoarthritis who ran on their osteoarthritic knees did not show more cartilage degradation with time than those who uh, did not. So exercise can be undertaken with confidence with osteoarthritic joints. And notice I didn't say with all arthritic joints because with rheumatoid, you know, it, it, you need to be careful about the various approaches with exercise because obviously with swelling and heat in the joint, there are certain, you know, overexertion things that can happen. But with osteoarthritis, the goal should be build muscle mass around the joints. We want, if you've got uh, osteoarthritis in the knees, then build your quads especially the quads, right? We know that osteoarthritis knee pain is reduced proportional to quad strength, okay? So we want to build up our quad strength. Uh, there's a program called Knees Over Toes, a guy called Ben Patrick. Uh, I don't know the guy, but I, I like what he does. Uh, you can get his little uh, colorful book on Amazon that goes through a range of different simple at-home exercises that I um, find effective for myself and also for clients. Um, you can also just do this at, at home without even following his plan uh, on the rest of your body. Whatever's affected, get repetitions and through those joints and build strength through those joints and eat clean and you'll do great. Uh, 
Osteoarthritis should not, in most cases, be that big of a uh, of a negative impact on life if we take the appropriate um, lifestyle changes that should come with that and and deploy them and 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 things will be just fine. Thank you. All right, and here is. A question from Joyce. Is there any way to grow back cartilage in one's arthritic knee? There's no cartilage and very painful bone on bone without knee replacement surgery. I am on an anti-inflammatory diet already. Um, from Joyce, was it? Joyce, yeah. Joyce, what a lovely name. So Joyce, I know exactly what you're going through. I understand the concept. In fact, a friend of mine uh, asked me the same question the other day. Uh, he, has, uh, he has a similar situation. Now, I'm going to say some things that are sort of predictable, and then I'm going to say some things that you've probably never heard before. So first of all, um, if you go to see an orthopedic surgeon who's you know does knees all day, every day, then they're probably going to tell you you should have a knee replacement because that's their world, that's what they do. And that is the right answer for a lot of people at, at when the knee is totally end of life. However, how end of life is it, uh, is the big question. And so um, if there is no swelling in the knee and it is just degenerative cartilage, um, then the question comes down to how many or how much time should you put in to try and build strength around the knee, increase range of motion in the knee, and reduce the pain in that knee to be able to extend its life for as long as possible, especially if you are under the age of about 50, 55, right? Um, if, however, you're later in life, then you might concede and say, well, a knee replacement is going to give me a tremendous quality of life once more. And that should be you know, something that I should embrace if it gets my life back and it gets me physically active and enables me to do things which increase my heart rate, improve my quality of life and extend my life just because I have my life back. Okay. So there's a fair few things to weigh up there, the sort of the cost benefits and depends a lot on your age. And so if you, regardless of age, just want to work hard on trying to get that knee back under into, into good working condition, then I would say lots of reps through the knee, something like a low impact exercise, uh, repetitions on a stationary bike with low resistance are a good place to start. Um, you want to exercise using like uni, like in simpler terms, you want to basically do one leg exercise at a time. So squats are good, but lunges are better. If a lunge is not possible for you at the moment, then consider getting into a lunge position and holding it, which is called just an isometric exercise, holding it until your legs start to get tired, then come back out of it. Then just get into it again, hold it, and then come back out of it. Then do the other side. We do this to try and correct imbalances in the leg, in the legs, so that you can start to get away from limping and, and affect this affects the hips as well. So we want to pretty much try and rebalance by working one side of the body at the at a time. And by doing so also introduces a balance component on the weak leg. So the, the, uh, the glute medius 
which is a muscle that wraps around the side of your hip, a stabilizing muscle, really implicated with knee pain. So we want to activate that by exercising one side at a time, as I said, via a lunge kind of setup. And you can do that with a prop in front of you. Of course, you don't need to make this at all risky. And uh, you can gradually work your way into being able to do some uh, step forward lunges or some walking lunges. And, and again, look at the knees over toes program that, that might work for you as well. And pretty much just aim to get repetitions through the joint and to build strength and flexibility. If you can do that, you're doing all that you possibly can to try and minimize the risk of a, or minimize the, or postpone a knee replacement surgery. Now that's all still pretty conventional. The things that I've seen that are unconventional, and this is where if someone were to now grab this next bit as a soundbite and try and claim that I'm some kind of nutcase, I take the risk. But what it is, is I have seen uh, some uh, non-published evidence of injected ozone gas into joints showing some cartilage regeneration by some doctors online. So if you want to go and investigate this, start with Dr. Robert Rohan, who's based in California, and start to see what the work that he is doing. Um, search podcasts, go into podcasts and then search for ozone and cartilage and see what comes up. That's how I heard some podcast and went down like a searching you know, rabbit hole, listening to people. This is several years ago. Uh, and you can find some evidence and watch some presentations where they show before and afters of some x-rays of improvement to cartilage. And then I've got a client and you might want to, it's on my Instagram. I posted this. So my Instagram is forward slash Patterson program. And if we go back a about a you go back to about 2021, I want to say, you'll find a poster before and after that I put up from a girl called Katie, who's inside our community. And you'll see that it's a posted x-ray before and after comparison. And she's been doing Bikram yoga, a style of yoga uh, for the past ooh, seven years. And she's a fanatic, amazing and um, she follows whole food plant-based, got started with that on our program, had incredible outcomes, got her life back, got off most of her drugs, was dangerously high dosing uh, Vicodin and all, um, all through diet and Bikram yoga. Now, her cartilage was uh, was pretty, fun. yeah, pretty impressive. So uh, take a look at that. And now, now just a disclaimer at the end of all this, the reality is probably not possible at the end of everything that I've just said to restore the cartilage, despite all of that positive possibilities. Um, Katie's the only person I've seen with some radiographic evidence and the rest of it is not published evidence. And then, so what we're after is here is pain avoidance and joint preservation through strength building that's your best bet okay so i know there's a long answer but i think it'll apply to a lot of people so hopefully it's helpful great thanks clint all right um lynn says can rheumatoid arthritis affect the eyes 
It can, and it shows up in something called Schrogen's disease. And so you get very dry eyes um, as a result of the inflammatory component. Now, there's a worse thing than that, which is called uveitis, and that's severe. And that's something that if you, if your eyes are very inflamed uh, and it's acute, you got to get straight to the uh, ophthalmologist or opto- ophthalmologist, isn't it? Uh, so, yeah, um, and definitely talk about this with the rheumatologist if you've got the dry eyes, because we don't want that to go on and on and on because obviously um you know that could eventually affect the 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 integrity of the eye so it absolutely can and dry eyes with rheumatoid is very common and so we do want to get our inflammatory markers as low as possible and this can be done of course with conventional immunomodulatory therapy with the with the doctor uh, and can also be done with everything we've talked about so far just on this this q a um so yeah with the the diet the exercise um and uh there is a um a polyphenol component in the eye tier uh tier um composition and so that moisture is a mixture of some fatty acids and uh water um and i remember uh speaking to uh, an eye expert about this a long time ago, and the um, uh, some uh, the possibility of some uh, of of looking at your omega six to three ratio would be interesting because uh, you may want some omega threes in your diet via potentially a supplement of an algae omega three. Um, if your eyes are at risk then you know no animals are being harmed. I think that could be worth exploring. First of all, though, talk to your rheumatologist and see what their recommendations are around this too. Great, thanks. There was a question on a supplement from Marilyn. How do you feel about taking glucosamine, HCL, and MSM, con- she said chondronite, but maybe she means chondroitin. Chondroitin. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, Okay. So first of all, let's start with the um, glycosamine. So there's the evidence goes back and forth on that. I haven't looked at it for a long time because the last time I saw the evidence, it said there's no clinical benefit for uh, taking this despite earlier published trials, which said that there were clinical benefit. It's back and forth. Uh, Reality is that's not going to, that's not going to, play any role in inflammatory arthritis like rheumatoid. Um, with osteoarthritis, you're like in terms of the pecking order of what matters the most, what we've talked about so far is infinitely more valuable than taking the glycosamine. Okay. So that's like, you know, just such a small impact on, on, on the big picture, not even a one percenter in my view. And then what about the, the MSM? That was more popular when I was struggling with this like 17 years ago than what I see today. No one's asked me about MSM incidentally, probably for over a year. And I get asked a lot of questions about this stuff. So MSM, uh, look, I want to say, look, it's just not in my top, it's it's just not on my my current recommendations of, of supplements, which are a very small list. And uh, the simple answer would be don't bother. Okay. Now, the other one you asked me about was, was I got two out of the three. 
Um, it was glycosamine, MSM, and there was another. Um, uh, it was glucosamine HC. It looked like oh, H hydrochloric acid. Yeah, HCI. They write yeah. Uh, if it's H, if it's HCL, yeah. <clears throat> so I used to take that myself, um, and so the studies show that approximately fifty percent of people with rheumatoid arthritis don't have the adequate release of hydrochloric acid into the stomach to break down proteins and to also act as a disinfectant for microbes that are coming in from our saliva in the absolute mega volumes because your mouth, believe it or not, is 20% of your entire body's microbiome. Um, we think of the uh, colon as being sort of 90% of our microbes. It's not. It's only around about 28, 30% of our total microbes. 20% is in the mouth. Okay, so at the start and end of this tube that we protect with our body that runs from our mouth all the way through our stomach and small intestine and colon out the other end, um, it is at the start and end of that is massive microbial communities. So those microbes in the mouth, uh, all of that in the crypts of the tongue and in the, in the gums and so forth, we're constantly swallowing that stuff into our stomach. Now, the gastric acid that's there primarily, as I said, in addition to breaking down proteins, is also there to protect our small intestine from this consistent onslaught of microbes that are entering. Thanks. Um, yeah. So the so so my answer is with 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 often a lot of people with RA low levels of hydrochloric acid. This can lead to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because we don't have enough of the antimicrobial HCL in the stomach to to protect us from those microbes entering the small intestine. And do we know that? from an old study from about 40 years ago that the there is a correlation between small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and rheumatoid arthritis symptoms. And so can we use hydrochloric acid to increase stomach acid to therefore uh, protect us from that? Yes, possibly. Um, but uh, I think if we just stop taking proton pump inhibitors and we eat a whole foods plant-based diet, and we stop eating processed foods, which feed the bacteria in the small intestine and therefore perpetuate small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, I think it will resolve itself. So you could take some hydrochloric acid. A lot of it also comes with pepsin, which comes from pigs, not my favorite. Uh, so you've got to watch if you do take HCL, what's in it with it. Um, and you could give it a go. So that's my long answer on that one. Thank you. Uh, Lynn says, are PMR and RA related and treated the same way? I don't know what PMR is. It's polymyalgia rheumatica. And the answer as to if it gets treated the same way is actually no. Uh, so there is this American College of Rheumatology guidelines that most rheumatologists use around the world. And they follow treatment protocols for certain variations of inflammatory arthritis. Now, with polymyalgia rheumatica, and here we're getting into rheumatology discussions, okay? So I'm just Clint. I'm not the rheumatologist, but I, uh, you can go and download those yourself if you want. Uh, go just type into Google American College of Rheumatology Guidelines 2021, which is the most recent version. And then download that for free and you'll see the treatment protocol, I believe, that's in there for polymyalgia rheumatica. 
And I believe, don't quote me, that it is more focused around steroid treatment like prednisone, uh, whereas rheumatoid is straight into the methotrexate disease modifying kind of world. But don't quote me on that. Go check with your doctor. Great. And um, Brenda says, how can I find out more about your program? We always put things in the show notes. You're watching on Facebook. So unfortunately, you don't see show notes. If you hop on over to YouTube and just look right under the video, the website and the show notes are there. Yes, wonderful. We currently are running two, uh, two websites as we transition. And so I released the book and we'll emphasize one more than the other. But you can access our program at pattersonprogram.com or over at rheumatoidsolutions.com. Thank you. And there's a comment um, from Keith that the Feldenkrais method has been a great help for his arthritis. And Lori says her RA is so much better with weight-bearing exercises. Tremendous. Good. Great. And Richard says, does taking a vegan DHA EPA supplement lower inflammation? Ah, great question. So... The position amongst the never-ending review articles on fish oil for rheumatoid arthritis is that it, it and and, the, and I'll get to why fish oil in a minute uh, is the most studied, um, is that it's generally considered advantageous. Now, there are deleterious uh, considerations with fish oil as the vehicle to get EPA DHA. And so I would like to suggest that if you want to explore this, and I certainly do, and I actually gave a presentation about this last month on Chef AJ Live, um, all about cell membrane optimization. So go and watch that presentation where I give this the full spectrum from start to finish, uh, and, and you will be a master of this topic and understand fully at the end of watching that. But in short, yes, there. There has never been a uh, clinical study uh, that shows that this group of patients took this algae oil and they had this inflammation at the end controlled for all other variables. They proved that, that that reduced inflammation. But if we take some association data, then yes, I think that uh, it's a good idea. Great. Dina says, should fruit be eaten away from certain other foods, for example, proteins like legumes or fats or nuts? Uh, she's wondering about food combining with fruit. <clears throat> um, no. So I wondered the same thing for a while. And I used to eat fruit a little bit away from my meals. And then I found that it didn't matter unless I ate watermelon with meals because I found that that seemed to not do too well. I seemed to always be bloated. Um, but Dr. Gregor got asked that question when I was hosting Australia's biggest plant-based conference um, about two months ago. Uh, I interviewed Dr. Gregor via tele, uh, sort of tele-presentation, Zoomy thing like this. And uh, he got asked the same question by the audience. And he said, we would not have evolved successfully if we had to worry about what we ate in what order, when, before we knew of the internet and and uh, could talk to each other like this. So no, we would not have evolved and succeeded as a species if that mattered. If we drink water with meals, even the end is extra water, it just gets absorbed away from the stomach. If we're dehydrated when we eat, the body pulls water into the stomach to adequately create gastric juices. And therefore the body just adapts and we can 
food combined and uh, and having some fruit with some legumes is not going to cause us to have any uh, uh, big problems. However, that's general terms to healthy population. And with rheumatoid, I got to tell you, uh, we go back to being this whole sort of like worst disease sort of to, to sort of get on top of situation. If you find that it upsets you, then don't do it. And that ultimately your body is the guide. And I like to eat fruits between meals. And I have a, so I have a glass of orange juice with my lunch and dinner. That's my habit. Um, but if I have some, some fruits with meals, it's fine. As I said, except for watermelon, I don't tend to do that. Thanks. Let's see. Boom, boom. She says she has no symptoms. She was told she has rheumatoid arthritis based on an ultrasound, but blood work showed no evidence. Can ultrasound show inflammation in the joints, uh, perhaps from overdoing a running program? TN says, I have no RA. I think TN might stand for True North. Uh, um, it sounds like you're in good shape. I wouldn't go looking deeper and deeper and getting more scans and so on. If, if the general feeling right now is that you're in good shape, you now know from this and all that we've talked about and everything that Chef AJ shares on her channel and how she eats and so forth, how to reduce inflammation and with your exercise habits that you'll now do, because I got excited about about half an hour ago, uh, you will continue to maintain good integrity around to support the joints and life will be good. Okay. So I don't see any need to kind of look into it any further unless symptoms start showing up, then go and ask the doctor, Hey, should I get some more tests and so on? Yeah. Don't treat numbers in other words. <laughs> so we took a lot of questions from the chat. Thank you guys for the great questions. So let me get to some of the ones that were submitted in advance. The first one's from Carol. She says, I've eliminated my trigger foods, grains, nuts, seeds, and white potatoes. I try to add them back in a small amount at a time and my symptoms come back. I especially want to be able to eat grains. Is there a way to heal the gut and then add them back? I'm 57 and did take antibiotics as a teenager for a couple of years. Yes, it doesn't sound like she's doing our program. And so the most efficient answer to this is she should do the Patterson program because whilst taking out nuts, seeds, grains is, is something that feels like a big intervention. Um, we, we have to go through more of a um, systematic and uh, well sort of trodden path here to really get to the bottom of it and restore the gut. Okay, thanks. And this is from Marie. She said, this is regarding knuckle bones on her thumb. She recently noticed what looks like bruising, darker color around the knuckle joint, but went away within a day. On closer look, there's a bony, lumpy growth, a bit of soreness. Is this arthritis and what to do? She's whole food, plant-based, no sugar or oil. Could there be any triggers? She does have a history of thyroid antibodies, elevated TPO. Um, I would uh, cautiously increase movement through the joint day by day. And um, it doesn't need to be any kind of hard exercise, just, just getting movement through the joint by opening and closing the, the fingers like this. And if it's the thumb, then just getting movement through the thumb. So repetitions equal relief. The synovial fluid inside the joint has a very, very minor but significant inflammatory component, which we can activate through movement. And so 
joint is only designed to move. After surgical intervention on a joint, they sit you on a passive continuous motion machine just to move the joint, move the joint, because that's how we stimulate a healing process for joints. Okay, so I would encourage gentle movement with incremental repetitions each day to see if you can essentially outmove the problem that's there with time. That's the best thing to do uh, and easiest thing to do first, because that could be enough. Just see how that goes. Okay, thanks. Let's see. We got more, more, more. I know we have more. There we go. This is from Danelle. My podiatrist suggested surgery for an arthritic big toe joint where it connects to the foot several years ago. I said no, because I had no pain, just some limited movement. Will plant-based eating slow the progression or deterioration? It should help. It should help. There's no doubt about it. And then the next question I would say <clears throat> back is, are you doing any barefoot walking? Because the benefits of barefoot walking for the feet are immense and joints need movement and shoes prevent movement. So if we wear shoes all day to prevent pain, because we've got inflammation in the feet with rheumatoid, uh, and then we take them off, we stand in the shower, and then we get out, take three steps, get into the couch, and then take four steps up the stairs, get into bed, it's hardly movement through those joints. So the big toe can be moved and move it should. So I would uh, move that toe back and forth a lot, go barefoot walking, starting out with just only a few minutes on very soft grass each day, weather permitting, and then build and build and build. The big toe is so important in terms of its impact on balance and knee and hip stability, everything. Uh, so uh, see if that knee can be, uh, sorry, see if that toe uh, can be uh, can, can be brought back into line a little bit with diet and barefoot walking. Got a whole, our podcast just came out yesterday, all about the benefits of barefoot walking. So again, YouTube and then uh, Rheumatoid Solutions podcast. Thanks. This is from Brandy. Is the goal of the Patterson program after reintroducing foods back into the diet to be similar to the McDougall diet, whole food plan exclusive with emphasis on high starch and low fat? Um, no, not necessarily. Um, the need for low fat becomes less and less with time. The longevity data suggests that a handful of nuts regularly actually increases lifespan. So I don't want to suggest a restriction of a handful of nuts here and there, unless people are in, you know, you know, a weight loss challenge battle all the time. Okay. But with rheumatoid, okay, just with rheumatoid, that typically doesn't apply. We are in a muscle atrophy, a muscle loss situation most of the time because inflammation cannibalizes muscle tissue. So we don't mind a few extra calories. Um, and therefore, I wouldn't say that we're ultimately aiming for low fat. Um, and then in terms of heavy starch, I wouldn't necessarily say that we want to emphasize starch above all else. However, it obviously is one of the major uh, sources of calories. And so 
I mean, to rough approximation, you could say, yep, sure. I mean, similar to McDougall in that sense. And I love that approach. Uh, but I also like to add lots of colorful fruits and vegetables because the polyphenols are so important to contribute to anti-inflammatory uh, molecules and also to contribute to gut health. And so um, if we were just to eat, you know, potatoes and potatoes and vegetables, uh, potatoes and eggs or uh, uh, corn and eggs, I think that um, for rheumatoid, we want to be throwing a lot more colorful fruits and vegetables in there if we can. But yes, it's certainly a starch-based platform, but let's also add lots of diversity to our diet and lots of color. Great. Perfect. And this is from Victoria. She'd appreciate any of your suggestions to heal a heel spur that reared its ugly head after being quiet for 20 years. Last year, after 30 years of living a vegetarian way of eating, I eliminated all animal food sources. The heel spur, I don't know. I'm sorry, I've not had one or, or actually had anyone ask me about that. So I haven't looked into it. So I'm not just going to make up an answer if I don't have something that's, uh, that's supported. Okay. All right. And this is, um, you know, um, we have a physical therapist, a plant-based physical therapist, Eileen Kopsoftis, that comes on once a month, maybe submit, resubmit the question for her. That might be something she's dealt with. And Amanda says, are you able to talk about recovery tips from costochondritis and slipping rib syndrome? So costochondritis is the inflammation in the rib cage, I think. Um, and the reason I think that is because I used to get that a lot when I was, uh, highly inflamed, I had pain in the rib, in the sternum, uh, so that with every breath, uh, in it would hurt. And with every, uh, bite, it would hurt my TMJ. So yeah, these little joints can be affected, uh, not just in the fingers and feet, but also in the chest and in the jaw, just to add to the joy. Now, what to do about that? Well, an anti-inflammatory approach across the board is obviously the way to go. Everything we've talked about so far. So that is the diet, uh, that is the movement, and that is uh, the full spectrum of lifestyle changes and medications, of course. Let's get that inflammation down from all angles. Now, one thing I found made a huge difference to the uh, inflammation in the rib cage was sleeping positions lying on the side that had what you'll find is that it's on one side of the breastbone or the other more one side than the other and experiment when you lie down you'll find that one side when you lie in it absolute agony if you lie on the other side it can give you some relief and on the back always feels good and uh, so you want to watch out for sleep positions irritating it is obviously something we don't want to be doing so we try and avoid irritation whilst we're healing our overall levels of inflammation. Opening up the chest and taking a really deep breath whilst at first can feel, oh, that feels like it's sort of hurting. Um, if we're able to stretch out that joint, open up our chest, lean back and get into a back bend with the arms open, I found that to be very helpful as well. And again, it can be a little tender when we do this. So don't cause you know, excessive pain, just see if you can explore that a little bit. And if you say, oh, I can get there safely without 
too much pain and then a little more and then a little more. I found that taking that to a fairly high extreme of doing that like every hour or so, really opening up my chest, that gave me a lot of symptom relief as well as getting my sleep positions right. Uh, the second half of that question, I don't know if I knew an answer for. Uh, it was something uh, else. I don't know if it's still in front of you, Chef AJ, but uh, but that's my answer for the for the first part. Great, thank you. I don't yeah. even remember what I just asked you. No, I the second part of it. It sound when I heard it, I'm like, oh, I don't think I know an answer to that. But the first part, oh yeah, the slipping rib syndrome, costochondritis, and slipping rib syndrome. Yeah, the slipping rib. I, I unfortunately I have nothing to offer there except that when I used to go to Bikram yoga all the time, which is now called 26 and two, when I used to go to that all the time, every second person in that studio was there because they had spinal issues, slip discs, compressed discs, misalignment, scoliosis. They're all there for spine problems. So I would totally talk to your local uh, Bikram yoga studio and ask them if you can come in and, and have a trial class. Great. Thank you. Uh, Carol says, uh, should one take supplements if you have osteoarthritis to decrease pain and inflammation? <clears throat> um, for the most part, I would say it's not the most highest priority or effective strategy. If we've got osteoarthritis, then we want to work on all the things we've talked about thus far um, with, uh, with getting a low inflammatory fiber-rich diet, and becoming very physically active and strong. If we just do those two things, then we're living the lifestyle of say a farmer in rural China who might be have a little crop uh, they tend to and work each day till very old age with very little osteoarthritic symptoms and very simple very simple mostly plant foods on a humble, you know, inexpensive diet with a high level of physical activity. These are low osteoarthritic people. And so that's a lifestyle that I encourage. Exercise a lot, especially the affected joints and eat clean and simple and humble. Humble, I love it. This is from Cindy. Could antibiotics given before the age of two impact gut health for life? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> yes, capital yes. Oh my gosh, this is a passionate point of mine. Um, I mentioned Katie earlier on the podcast with who gave the example of the before and after of the x-ray on her knee joint. Um, so Katie actually was given four rounds of antibiotics before the age of one. And on her, just after her first birthday was diagnosed with uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Uh, we know that there is a massive connection between antibiotics given at any age and the development of inflammatory arthritis. And so um, the answer could not be more yes. And it's tragic because at that age, like children are just basically exposed to whatever like their parents tell them and to do and what the medical community do. Parents are saying, okay. Um, but we're becoming more and more aware and the UK especially is trying to minimize unnecessary prescriptions of, of antibiotics because of the known and detrimental impact. And, um, and in the February, here's an advertisement for the February edition of the Arthritis Hour on Chef AJ. I did an hour on drugs and gut health 
go and watch that here on YouTube because I talked about that and I gave, I showed the science connecting the recency and the and the cumulative dose impact of, of uh, antibiotics on the development of rheumatoid arthritis. Went into a fair bit of detail there. So that's the February edition of the Arthritis Hour here on Chef AJ. Good, thanks. And here's a question from Jackie. Regarding taking muscle relaxers for myofascial pain in the neck and upper back, also TPI injections for the muscle spasms in the upper back, including dry needling, what do you recommend? <laughs> um, well, um, muscle spasms. I, I, I don't think I'm the right guest to answer that well. Um, I'm going to come up with predictable answers about you know, inflammation reduction in, in general overall and mineral deficiency potential with regards to muscle spasms. We know that cramping is, is, is acutely related to um, mineral deficiencies, particularly magnesium and so forth. So, you know, I'd explore that. A mineral-rich diet, eat lots of mineral-rich foods. I love cacao as a fantastic source of minerals and, of course, tons of leafy greens. So if you add some cacao to your smoothies with leafy greens and fruit, you're going a long way to increasing your mineral intake. Um, and uh, potassium is another important mineral for for our uh, muscles. So I would explore that. Go on a, a mineral madness uh, push and see if that has any impact. Perfect. Thanks. And guys, if your question, uh, you know, you always feel free to resubmit it for another doctor, perhaps Eileen Kapsoftis, our physical therapist, or Dr. Stefan Esser, who is a sports medicine doctor, plant-based. Because like Cilia in the chat says, any tips for low back pain, especially with morning stiffness? I have osteoarthritis and spine scoliosis. I'm active. I exercise most days. I'm, I'm going to, of course, let Clint answer. But Cilia, please look at some of the videos that Eileen has done for my channel. She just did a two-part series on back pain. But what do you say, Clint? Well, I would say that though that two-part series is probably going to comprehensively cover it. But uh you know, back pain can be from so many different things. I mean, back pain can, and, and I'm not suggesting this is it at all, but just for illustration purposes, back pain can come from constipation. Uh, back pain can come from too much seating. Back, back pain can come from your mattress and the way that you sleep. Or back pain can come from, you know, postural way that you, uh, you know, just interact with life. So I would probably start, if you haven't already, get some imaging done and see if there's actually some physical structural stuff there. You mentioned scoliosis, but is that at the lower back part of the, uh, of, of the spine that tends to be more upper and, and just find out, look, if there's anything not structurally wrong with that lower back part, lower back, then you could, you know, intentionally uh, exercise in a way to strengthen the lower back and, I've, I don't know why it's come up so much on this call, but Bikram yoga, again, is the go-to for many people with back pain. I've seen unbelievable things going to Bikram yoga for my body, for rheumatoid, uh, for people in the, you know, you're standing next to nude guys in the shower. So you're pretty quick to strike up some conversation to take away from the obvious un uncomfortableness of standing around naked next to each other. And uh, uh, we would, uh, 
we would all exchange our various uh, ailments. And, uh, and I've seen so many guys come and go over the years in <clears throat> the studio I used to go to. And the stories they would tell about coming off motorbikes and then coming in here and could barely lift the leg off the ground and, and their back was so bad. And now, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So I would explore that. If you, do, if you do 10 classes of Bikram yoga, I'd be amazed if your back didn't feel better. And as a general rule, one of the best things about Bikram yoga is the fact that it incorporates lots of back bends. So even if you didn't have a class available to you, even if you didn't want to watch a free Bikram yoga class on YouTube and follow along at home, you didn't want to do that. At the very least, try incorporating some back bends into your day in an exploratory way and see if that starts to provide some relief. Lifting up first and then keeping that upward tension through the spine, leaning backwards often with arms over your head to, to create some like a, a, a sort of a, a circular movement backwards safely. You mentioned that Bikram Yoga was renamed because Dina said she couldn't find any classes with that name by her. Yeah, 26 and 2. Uh, so the number 26 and then, and then the number 2 is what it has been renamed by a lot of studios because a lot of people um, have been turned away because of some uh, some serious allegations around the uh, the creator around some serious, you know, potential things that he may have done. So, um, <clears throat> you know, not wanting to get into the politics on that, but uh, the class itself, just specifically the set of postures and the experience uh, has been very uh, beneficial for many of our community and me. But it's so hot. I, I can't stand <laughs> the heat. <laughs> Let me tell you this, I have hated every single class I've ever done. And it's a testimonial to the session and its effectiveness, given that I cannot stand it. I've done over a thousand classes and still recommend it. That, like, that's how effective it was for me and so many of us. And yet I, I never, never enjoyed a single minute of it. Well, <laughs> that is a testimonial, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you think neck disc surgery typically makes sense or is often overutilized? I don't know if that's something you can speak. Not, that one's not for me. That's not your area of expertise. Thank you for saying that when you don't know. Somebody said they did. Um, Susan says she had, I don't know if you know what this is, prolozone therapy in her hip and she had great results. Boom. That's what I'm talking about. Remember earlier I mentioned ozone yep. therapy. Yeah. So prolozone therapy is the combination of ozone with also some antioxidant. Uh, I think it's fluids that they put in there as well. So it's essentially um, what I was talking about, but with some additional things. And I'm just very pleased to hear that she had excellent results. I summarize that, that ozone therapy works. Uh, if it's going to work, it works well in a low environmental uh, space, uh, sorry, a low inflammatory environment. Uh, my experience, and I've had a lot of experience with ozone into rheumatoid active joints, is that beyond the fact that it hurts like no one's world, um, is that it also uh, uh, has mixed results because it's an oxidant and we're already highly oxidative stress uh, in the joint. So I think it, I think that if you're going to try it, only try it with osteoarthritic joints 
And like the person who just made that comment, it might have some good results. Cool. Um, Mary Beth is saying, so don't take acid pump inhibitors such as Nexium. You and I both know the answer to this one, don't we? Okay. Well, uh, so, yeah, so the cause, not the not the symptoms. Yeah. So there's some very uncontroversial science around taking proton pump inhibitors, which are antacids designed to reduce stomach acid. And what you're doing is you're basically opening the gateway from all of that bacterial in the mouth to pass through the stomach, get into your small intestine, where it can create an imbalance in the microbiome inside your small intestine, which by the way, is meant to be at a very low level because stomach acid acts as a protector and bile acid acts as a anti disinfectant in the small intestine. So it's pretty normally absent or low levels of bacteria in the small intestine. So we don't want to be doing that. Uh, and I mean, it's a no brainer not to take a, a, a drug that impacts one of the crucial, you know, working mechanisms of the digestive tract. But um, sometimes we feel we have to because of acid reflux and so on. However, I have seen those with acid reflux following our program to, you know, I can't think of a case that still needs to take the proton pump inhibitors after following our program. It normalizes itself. That part of the body is actually much easier to fix than the very, very lower part where we're trying to heal leaky gut at the very end in the colon. And so my expectation and hope for you is that this can be resolved and gradually explore the, the tapering of the PPI as you eat and exercise optimally. Yep, that'd be great. Um, where does arthritis start at? Asks Elizabeth. Always in Chicago. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I, I, so, so there's a great, great, great amount of research around this. And uh, a, a study showed last year that just came out, the first study ever to show that in a mouse experiment, they could take a bacterial strain that's only present in people with rheumatoid arthritis, put it into the bowel of the mouse and have the mouse develop rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, so there's a first time this has ever been demonstrated without predisposing the mouse to be vulnerable to arthritis through genetic modification or through creating dysbiosis by feeding it a high-fat Western diet. So you basically can create rheumatoid arthritis now in mice. Now, from a bacteria, okay, so this is a huge step forward into supporting what we've, what I've been talking about for a very long time without the, without the publications uh, to necessarily uh, get me as excited as I've just become. But what, what, what we're able to, to say is that it, sometimes a virus maybe, like Epstein virus, Epstein-Barr virus has been implicated. There's a bacteria called proteobacteria that's been implicated. There's P. gingivalis bacteria, which is a microbe that sits inside our gums and develops into gum disease or periodontal disease when it becomes overgrowth. That's heavily implicated with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and so we know that there are lots of potential microbial triggers that can set this off. And I want to add to that and say, in a dysbiotic state, 
So it's like um, if you've got the wrong soil, and then uh, then you then you insert into that something to to potentially disrupt the balance of the soil, and the soil's already messed up, then it can can create catastrophic effects. So I believe that we need the dysbiotic state. Dysbiosis, of course, is just an imbalance of the bacteria in your gut. So not enough good guys, too many bad guys, and some inflammation at the gut wall. Okay. So if we have that, and then we've got these other those microbes I mentioned creating a problem, then we could develop into autoimmunity. So that tends to be the working model as to, to what's going on here. And the dysbiosis is most kind of established through antibiotic use uh, and then long-term via a Western-style diet. Yep, I would imagine that would be the cause. Um, how about bromelain as a good anti-inflammatory? It's okay. So it's a, like a little sort of nice, friendly sort of, you know, if anything is harmless, it's probably pretty harmless and it helps break down proteins. And of course it's the, it's the contribution from undigested proteins entering the gut uh, uh, that then can enter into our bloodstream, which can exa exacerbate uh, the immune response that can be problematic. So if we can assist with breaking down proteins, we may reduce our symptoms. There's no studies on this. Um, enzymatic impact studies are not particularly prolific. Uh, um, but I used to take tons of bromelain. It was like my favorite supplement for a while, not because it necessarily made me feel better, but I just liked the whole concept of it. I liked the I just, it, it fitted with my understanding and the model I had in my mind of what was going on with my body. And so I took a lot of it and um, I cannot say definitively if it was tremendously helpful or not, but uh, I don't take it anymore. My wife found it really helpful for her headaches. So there's a case study of one, her story, she likes it for headaches. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, great. Um, Apple says, this man is wonderfully knowledgeable. What a blessing to hear his responses. Thank you. Uh, and B says, this is such fabulous information. Uh, I do not have arthritis, but have knee pain and would like to improve my knee joints. I'll also watch Aline Kopsifis. She's done many uh, episodes on that. Okay. How about the sun salutation? Asks Dina. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. So I think that it's a um a lovely, lovely thing to do. I mean, it's a it's a great posture to put yourself into. I think it's a mindfulness uh connection with the body. Um, I think it it, it encourages deep breathing, opens the chest. I see only tremendous things about that. Yeah. I do a kind of yoga called yin. I don't know if that's good for arthritis. My wife teaches yin. It's my, wife, it's teaches my it. favorite. <laughs> she teaches it. Yeah. 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 So what's, yeah, she's got a class tonight where she's teaching that. So she teaches that plus sound therapy. So she teaches oh, sound like therapy. Sound healing. Yeah. Oh, that's sound my healing. favorite. Yeah. She's got the most beautiful collection of crystal alchemy bowls yeah. and 
she sets them up in this beautiful semicircle on this lovely mat and then she lights some candles and everyone lies down and then she uh, comes into the room and uh, she puts everyone through 30 minutes of yin yoga and then she has them lie down in savasana and then she plays the sound therapy and people walk out like oh. I know. <laughs> it's so great yeah yes uh, yeah, um, Clayton said Bikram yoga got rid of sciatica for him. And Elizabeth is asking, can GERD activate knee joint pain? I think so. I mean, so what the question is, is uh, gastrointestinal reflux disease. Uh, the E might not be, uh, anyway, that, that that's the acid Esophageal, gastroesophageal. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and it's through the mechanisms that we talked about before. If we then use a proton pump inhibitor to suppress that, we then open the door to the microbial masses from our mouth to enter the small intestine. And we know that in cases of rheumatoid arthritis, that that correlates to an increased C-reactive protein and symptoms. And so we know that there's a disruption of the intestinal wall in the small intestine, creating leaky gut. And this is going to helpfully answer this question even better, is that this can translocate lipopolysaturate, well, it could translocate the bacteria from the actual small intestine into the bloodstream, which has an inflammatory membrane to it in the case of lipopolysaturide. And so we could increase inflammation. And yes, I postulate that that could increase knee pain through systemic inflammation. Interesting. All right. Can turmeric help with arthritic pain? Yeah, absolutely. Turmeric should be consumed uh, in meals. I like to just, you know, use lots of Indian style cooking in our family. And um, uh, I'm really, really good at uh, eating cooked food from my wife. And she, um, she likes to use uh, turmeric quite a bit. Uh, in fact, um, I, there's some curcumin studies, which of course is the extract from, from turmeric. Um, and uh, there's, some, there's some studies that show that it's effective at reducing inflammation uh, in people with inflammatory arthritis. So we like it. You cannot go wrong. I'm not sure if there's an upper limit. Probably there is on these things, bowel tolerance like diarrhea or something, but um, definitely use all of these herbs and spices that are colorful. These are really anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. Can surgery or can knee replacement surgery be avoided by losing weight? <laughs> I walked out of a lift one time with a very large man in Florida. And um, I, I, I like striking up conversation with strangers. It's sort of just something that I, is a bit of a bit of a fun thing because you never know what you're going to learn, right? It's I, I just like to do that. Um, anyway, so I'm in the lift with this massive guy, and uh, he, I said, uh, "Hey, you going? What are you doing?" And he was like, oh, he's mad." And I said, "What's going on?" He's like, "I just went to try and get a knee surgery, arrange for a knee surgery." And I said, oh, okay. And uh, had the appointment go. And he's like, the doctor wants me to lose 50 pounds. Otherwise he won't touch me. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, and so I, and I said, well, that's pretty easy. Why don't you just eat like a plant-based diet? <laughs> and he looked at me and he looked like a Ram driver, you know, like a truck, right? Those Ram truck drivers. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and he's like, 
I forget his response, but it wasn't very pleasant. So anyway, so he walked out in a huff because he was told he had to lose weight before he was even eligible to getting a knee replacement because a knee replacement only lasts as long as the cumulative repetitions, weight and friction allows on the actual prosthesis. So we don't want to go into it having a heavy body weight because it's going to reduce the lifespan of the prosthesis, right? So someone who's 300 pounds pounding down onto a replaced joint is not going to have a joint that lasts as long as someone who's 120 pounds, right? And I think we can apply that very sensibly also to arthritic joints. If we're pounding down a lot of weight into that compromised joint, and especially if we're limping so that we're kind of like got some unusual mechanics going on through those, through those joints as well, it's only going to have a negative effect if we have more weight bearing down. So yes, weight loss is a good strategy, either as a, as a joint lifespan increasing mechanism or as one to eventually increase the lifespan of the prosthesis in the future. Excess body weight also uh, serves no purpose. I mean, why do we, we, we don't really need this literally by definition, excess body weight. Uh, and those on your channel, Chef AJ, uh, may have picked up an idea or two from you over the years as to how to lose some excess body weight. Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of my story in a nutshell is uh, the reason I uh, lost the weight finally when it was at about 13 years ago was because I wanted to avoid having just regular old knee surgery because I was so afraid of anesthesia and stuff. So I like, the, I like your point that even if uh, even if a doctor will do the surgery without the person losing weight, wouldn't it be beneficial to lose it so that that joint doesn't get compromised so soon? Again, we had a meetup today and somebody was telling the story about uh um, a relative of theirs that is quite overweight and the doctor refused to do surgery while the person was so overweight. So you know what they did? They found another doctor. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Uh, there's always, uh, it's always an easy way. It might not be the, the best, but, uh, but there you go. Yep. Uh, Laura says, what is the black contraption thing in front of Clint? This is a, uh, a podcaster, Mike. Aha. Uh -huh. And um, it uh, hopefully enables a high quality of sound. Uh, I've got very poor voice technique, even though I've done stand-up for a very long time. I think it's from shouting into dark and dingy rooms, which have a little bit too much background noise and trying to get myself heard. And so I have a tendency to overexert my, my vocal cords. And I, if I've got a microphone nice and close to me, it tends to settle down my, you know, natural tendency to want to yell. <laughs> nice. uh, I cured all inflammation by cutting out all vegetable starches, grains, and man-made seed oils. Coffee was the last inflammation that had to be cut. Okay. So if you eliminate, so this, this brings us into elimination diets that include things like carnivore diet, paleo diet, keto diet and things like that. So the metaphor that I provide here is that when you've, when you've got lots of joint pain and you're in miserable state with mental health issues, this, is, this all comes with rheumatoid. You've got mental health issues. You've got depressive tendencies. You've got agonizing joint pain. You've got a completely messed up gut. You've got food sensitivities and 
you've got medications that cause uh, often a lot of side effects and the world does not look good. Let's call that the burning island, okay? You gotta get off that burning island. You'll do anything in your mind to get off the burning island because that thing has to be, that world has to end. So imagine we're on the burning island and then we see some ships in front of us, some little boats, right? One of them says carnival, one of them says paleo, one of them says keto, one of them says plant-based, right? Now, if we've got all of these messed up things, it's come about, or at least it's been contributed to a lot from eating a lot of Western foods, from eating a lot of the meats, right? Eating a lot of the cheeses and dairies and so on. So if we see something that still includes one of our favorite foods, which is meats, we'll probably take that boat to escape the island, okay? Now, when we want to choose a boat, we want to ideally have three things in mind. Our diet that we want to choose as we get off the boat should, should do three things. Number one, it should give us some temporarily short-term symptom relief, right? So we definitely want to get some relief by jumping on that, on that boat. Number two, we'd want to get onto a boat that actually improved our gut health. Okay, so we're getting off one diet, the burning island, onto another, but we want that diet to improve the dysbiosis, actually to address the underlying cause. And the third thing that we would like that new diet to do would be not to increase our risk of death. All right, so we'd want a diet that did those three things. So as we look at those boats, a way of escaping off this, this island, if we were to jump onto a keto, carnivore, or paleo diet, we, by eliminating some of the worst food sensitivities that are most common food sensitivities, like dairy, for example, in each case, each of those diets, all in, every one of these four diets eliminates dairy. So there was a study published where a woman was able to create and then eliminate symptoms on and off. And this was a published study by just adding and then eliminating dairy products. And they just followed her and they watched her symptoms and recorded them at the rheumatology office. So dairy just brought on, then she stopped it and went off again. So if we just eliminate dairy on any one of those four diets, we can see symptom relief. Okay, so we, we, we might get the first one ticked, which is symptom relief by taking any one of those four options, all right? But then which one of those four options actually improves the microbiome? Well, we know that all three of the first meat-heavy options do not, okay? The meat-heavy options all increase some pathogenic bacteria and increase the likelihood of developing intestinal inflammation like Crohn's disease and colitis and so forth. So this has come through from studies about carnivore diet uh, and keto and paleo diet. Okay, so we know that we're not improving our gut health. We're establishing a more potentially dysbiotic and disease platform gut. And then third of all, the, the only diet of the four that includes foods that are associated with longevity, which are whole grains, legumes, and fruits and vegetables. Well, the legumes and the whole grains uh, uh, are only in a plant-based diet. So we, by choosing the wrong boat, we could be getting onto an elimination diet that acts like a Titanic. 
So we get off the burning on. We feel like everything's great because some of our symptoms have dissipated, but we're on a boat that increases our risk of death and worsens dysbiosis so that eventually at some point, we're actually going to have worse symptoms, more problems. And, it, and I've worked with these folks, very severe other challenges, which I, which I don't want to sort of you know, put out into the world. But um, yeah, so we've got to choose carefully the way that we try and get away from a Western diet because what appears to be working in the short term may have long-term serious consequences. Yep. Very well said. Well, Clint, this was really fun taking all the questions. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. Unless Thank you. you. Have a specific we, we, topic, or we can do like a mix and mash, like a mashup sometime. <laughs> yeah. If there's enough interest, I can go through and do a whole uh, presentation around exercise. Um, obviously I gave that some, uh, some air today. There's a lot of questions around that. Um, so yeah. Um, Thank you very much. I've got plenty of other things we can talk about and I can present on as well. So maybe you and I can talk yeah, offline. Or even, even a cooking demo. A cooking demo. I know you keep asking for a cooking demo. Or let some me, yin let... yoga. I'd love to see your wife's yin yeah, yoga. That's, right. that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got plenty of options. So I just want to say thank you to you for having me again. Yeah. And thank you to all the questions that came in. Some tremendous questions. And I hope that someone's... Um, you know, I hope that everyone who's uh, watched this has uh, has gained something from it and and have less pain. If we run out of questions, we can just do some stand up. <laughs> I'm thinking of getting back in it again, but uh, you know, I go back and forth. It, it's hard. I mean, it's not hard. The coming up with the material is the part that's hard. The, the actually performing it that's easy. But you know, you know, you, you got to make it up yourself. Nobody, we don't have writers. You and I. I know. And when you feel so, uh, what's the word? validated by like what you're doing, helping so many people uh, in this space and the validation that I receive from, you know, working with people with inflammatory arthritis, it brings you into that more and more and more. And the concept of sitting down and just frivolously coming up with totally random, potentially funny jokes to be told at some point down the track, uh, it, 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 it's difficult to justify the use of time in that department. So, you know, if, if I've got kids that need me, I've got people that need my help and I've got all these things going on. I think, why don't I just spend an hour or two just sitting at my desk and just coming up with gags? Uh, it's, it, I always find it hard to justify the time. So, well, I hope the next time my favorite teacher teaches, if he does it, because I know you can't do the morning class, it's just too yeah. early for you. But if he does it like it's five o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. maybe you could take it with me. It'd be fun to be, be comedy fun. buddies with you, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. I've yeah. been asking you for a long time. So I know you've been hounding me. I can't say no forever. That's just do rude. me a solid. Do me. You know who wants to take the class, but he's been too busy. I shouldn't say that. Dr. Goldhammer, he's hilarious. People don't realize he is hilarious. Oh, I, I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's natural. Well, and Anne says, you're a very professional. I love his talk. Thank you. Worth every minute. Yes. So thank you so much, Clint. And I'll see you next month for the Arthritis Recovery Hour for Clint Patterson, second Saturday of the month. Thanks so much. Bye for now. Take care. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back much earlier tomorrow at 8 a.m. Pacific time for Dr. Peter Rogers. Take care, everyone. Happy Easter. Happy Pet.